This is My Car Guru, Season 11, Episode 108. Well, hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of My Car Guru. This is an exciting week for me. I ordered a new vehicle, and it is coming in on the truck. supposed to be in today. And so, you know, I get excited when I'm, even though I've been in the car business for 45 years and have loved cars for about 60, let's see, I'm 66, um, 63 years, uh, I still get excited when I get a new toy. And that's basically what this is. So I ordered a, a new Porsche from the Porsche factory. And it is supposed to, wait a minute, Lenny, aren't you a Ford Nissan dealer? Yes, I am. But, you know, sometimes you've got to explore certain things. No, I'm not a Porsche dealer, but I love Porsches. I'm not a Chevy dealer anymore, but I love Chevys. You know, there's certain Volkswagens. I'd love to have a, a Volkswagen GTI, Golf GTI. Love them. Love the Subaru uh, WRX. Love them. There's my computer going off. What else do I love? There's a lot of cars I don't love, though. You know, I didn't love the Chevy Vega. I did at the time. That was the only option my dad gave me for something to drive back in 1973. He gave me a Chevy Vega GT. It had a whopping 72 horsepower out of a 2.3 liter engine. You know, when you look at that versus the Ford Pinto of the day, Ford Pinto had 76 horsepower. It had four more horsepower than a Vega out of a smaller displacement engine, 1.9 liters. So you fast forward to today, modern four-cylinder engines. A Nissan Sentra, for example, I'm a, I'm a Nissan dealer, 2023 Nissan Sentra has a two-liter uh, inline four-cylinder engine versus the 2.3-liter Vega. The Vega had 72 horsepower. The Sentra has 149. How did that happen? Lenny. I'll explain that. The Ford Mustang comes with a standard four-cylinder engine. I remember how people just really said, wait a minute, you can't put a four-cylinder in a Mustang. Well, they did that many years ago when they came out with the Mustang II. They must have forgotten about that. But the modern Mustang has a base four-cylinder engine. Well, how much horsepower does it have, Lenny? 310 out of 2.3 liters. So... A lot of the car magazines look at how much horsepower do you get out of a out of an engine per liter. Well, the Vega had 31.3 horsepower per liter, the Pinto 40, the Nissan Sentra has 74.5, and the Ford Mustang has 134.78 horsepower per liter of engine size. So this is a lead-in into the discussion today and really this week. We're going to be talking about car knowledge and back to basics. And I'm going to explain to some of you novices, which are all kind of novices. Well, maybe some of you aren't. I've got a few radio show listeners that are extremely knowledgeable car guys and gals who can tear apart engines and do all that kind of stuff. But occasionally they get, I don't know, a little bit of humor out of the show and love listening for my mistakes and letting me know about it through my uh, through text and through email. I do appreciate it, though. Not much. But today we're going to be talking about engine technology and how did we get here? How did we get from 1973 to 2023? 
And what kind of changes did they make to make engines so much more efficient? Well, a lot of it was spurred by the government. Now, I know that some of you, including me, would like government to stay out of things. But the reality of it is that there are some functions, some good functions of government. And one of the things that they did, well, really, it was over a long period of time, is they really did make cars better faster than I think the car companies would have done so. I think that from an emissions standpoint, especially back in the 70s, I mean, when they changed the emission guidelines in the early 70s, they crushed the auto industry from a performance standpoint. I mean, Corvettes went from horsepower in the mid-threes to horsepower in the 180 range. The manufacturers just could not figure out how to maintain power with all of these smog pumps and and other devices that were required in order to make what came out of the exhaust pipe acceptable, you know, to the government regulators. I mean, people, if you live in a state where you have to have an inspection, they still stick a little sniffer thing into your exhaust pipe to make sure that it's not spewing too much exhaust now, or too many nasty things in the exhaust. Now, if you live in the state of Tennessee, and maybe some other states, I'm not sure, we don't have a state inspection. Uh, I, I think the legislatures or the legislators in the state of Tennessee said that would be too much of a burden on our citizens if they had to you know, make sure that their taillights were working. Uh, make sure that their turn signals were working and that they weren't spewing too much and their brakes were good and stuff like that. So, state of Tennessee, we don't have an inspection, therefore we have a lot of people driving around in cars that probably shouldn't be on the road. But let's get back to government. When they put the squeeze on the auto industry, the auto industry is very innovative, and they figured out how to manage it, make it work. They came out with engine management control through computers. They also came out with something called the catalytic converter, which basically took the uh, nasty stuff coming out of the, out of the engine, converted it with the use of some precious metals, including platinum, believe it or not. And so what came out the exhaust pipe was a lot better. Now, the early days of the catalytic converter, it was not very, very pleasurable. If you remember, and maybe you will, how badly those things smelled when they got hot. It was a sulfur smell, and uh, when, especially when the engine wasn't performing like it should. Yeah, those catalytic converters were terrible. And then people forgot how to pronounce them. They thought they were Cadillac converters. I can't tell you how many customers have come in saying, I think my Cadillac converter is stinking. And I'd say, well, okay, let's check it out. And normally it was because the, uh, the vehicle was running too rich, and which meant that too much fuel was going into the combustion chamber, and the catalytic converter was responding likewise. So as far as engines are concerned, there were some key things that happened to basically help engines get to where they are today, especially four-cylinder engines. Number one, they figured out a way to change the timing and the duration of when the valves in the engine open. So you're, the heads in an engine, which is just a component of the engine, they act, that's where the valves are. There are two well, back in the old days, there was an exhaust valve and an intake valve. When the intake valve opened up, air went into the combustion chamber, was mixed with fuel. There was a spark, 
and an explosion, which pushed the piston down, turning the crankshaft, which was connected to the flywheel and the transmission and all the way through the drive shaft to the rear wheels, which made the car move forward or backwards, depending on which gear you had it in. So those two valves were expanded to four valves. So instead of having two valves per cylinder, there were four valves per cylinder. If you increase the number of valves, you increase the airflow through the engine. This in turn improves performance, fuel economy. Really the first multi-valve engines were four cylinders because they really needed to figure out how to get better fuel economy. And V8s use a lot more gas. V6s, inline sixes use more fuel too. So they were trying to do their best to improve the fuel economy of four-cylinder engines, yet increase the power. So what else did they do? Well, they made cars lighter by making the engine blocks out of aluminum. Now, they've been doing that for a long time. We've had aluminum engine blocks. Matter of fact, the Chevy Vega, notorious as it was, had an aluminum engine block that was very subject to overheating and warping. And so they had all kinds of problems out of Vegas back then until they figured out, well, let's sleeve the cylinders. Instead of just having aluminum cylinders, we'll sleeve them with, uh, with steel, with iron. But that was all part of the learning process as they learned how to make engines more lightweight and, and all of the components that go in an engine more lightweight. Really, some of the biggest changes had to, to do with how the engine got fuel. Back then, my Vega had a carburetor, a little two-barrel carburetor. And that's basically how cars got fuel since the early 1900s. Not much had changed. Carburetors had gotten bigger, but they were still basically the same. They sat on top of the engine. It was a very inefficient way to mix air and fuel because it had to pass through the carburetor, through an intake manifold, before it got all the way down there into the cylinder. Well, they figured out that the best way to get fuel into the cylinder was to inject it at a very high pressure directly into the cylinder. Forget about all that, you know, carburation stuff and the intake. Let's bypass all of that and go straight into the cylinder, which is what most cars are today. So that really boosted the horsepower of these smaller engines. Okay, I'm going to take my first break, and I'll be back here in just a minute. Okay, I am back. So fuel injection made a big difference. Now, early on, they had uh, something called thr uh, throttle body injection, which still kind of sat on top of the engine like a carburetor, and it still went through the intake. But the direct injection design and model basically transformed a lot of vehicles. And the other thing that did it was turbocharging. You know, turbocharging, as I've explained in the past, is just about getting more air into the engine and really cooler air into the engine. I think it was way back in 2010 when Ford came out with the EcoBoost engines, which was basically a direct-injected six-cylinder, a V6, with twin turbochargers in it. Well, Chevrolet did commercials and made fun of them. You know, how can you possibly put a V6 engine with turbochargers uh, in a full-size truck when all that they've used over the years has been V8 engines. Well, Ford took a lot of heat. Chevrolet stayed with the V8. They used a different technology called cylinder deactivation, which didn't work all that great, but it, it, it got the job done. They still could claim that they had a V8 engine. 
Well, Ford said, we're going to use V6s. Well, all the Ford dealers said, say what? You know, we were in shock that they were going to make that the engine of choice for Ford trucks. Well, it turned out great. EcoBoost engines are famous. Not infamous, famous, because they have done a great job in improving fuel economy, improving power. The truck that I drive is a uh, power boost, which is a hybrid, but it also uses an EcoBoost engine with twin turbochargers and a V6, and it will smoke most of the other trucks out there on the road. Smaller engines with big power and fuel injection and turbocharging is what did it. I just bought a new lawnmower from myself. Yes, it's Green Outdoor is our new uh, lawnmower store and outdoor store where we sell all kinds of golf carts and and outdoor patio furniture and grills and electric bicycles and stuff. Really cool if you want to come see me in Greenville, Tennessee. We don't. Our website is not up yet, but it will be, and you'll be able to shop at greenoutdoor.com. But in the meantime, you'll just have to listen to me talk about it. But I got a new lawnmower. It's a Ferris lawnmower. Uh, Ferris 2200 has a 60-inch mowing deck and a full suspension, which is the main reason I'm buying it. But it also has fuel injection. See, before, on my other mower, I had to pull up a choke. I had to hit the start button, or I mean, turn the key and start it. And then I had to adjust the choke and the throttle, get it just right, and it would eventually start. Pretty quickly, but, you know, it still took a little bit of, uh, of manipulation to get it to start and run right. With fuel injection, you just turn the, the key and boom, it starts. And you push a button to increase the throttle speed. You don't have to move this big lever. And when it gets into thicker grass, the computer automatically raises the, uh, the speed of the engine. So it compensates for it, whereas with the other one, I had to slow down. Because I already had the throttle wide open, and I just had to slow down or back up whenever it got in the thick grass, and you know, it'd get the, the grass out from under it. With fuel injection, I don't have to do that anymore. Plus, it rides like a Rolls Royce because of that suspension. But yeah, we sell Ferris mowers and Bentelli golf carts. We're really into the electric world right now. Not just cars and trucks at Gateway Ford and Gateway Nissan anymore. It's actually at, at our green outdoor business, we're selling electric leaf blowers, electric chainsaws even, uh, electric bicycles, electric golf carts. They're really not golf carts. They're street legal vehicles. They're called low-speed vehicles, LSVs. And you can actually register it and get tags and has a glass windshield and windshield wipers and turn signals and a horn, big mirrors, seat belts. It's relatively safe unless somebody hits you. Not safe then. But anyway, it's, uh, it's something that people really want right now. They use them like crazy in the campgrounds. And Ben Telly is just a great brand. But they have lead acid batteries and they have lithium batteries. And by the way, have you been listening to the news lately about this new discovery out in the western United States? I can't remember exactly where it is, Utah or Wyoming or someplace. But, you know, the problem was that the biggest lithium producers was either in Africa or South America or China. We have discovered, apparently, the largest underground supply of lithium in the world in the United States. They say this is a game changer for electric vehicles in this country. Not only uh, will we not have to pay outrageous prices for lithium, we will be able to get it cheaper. It'll be more plentiful. There will be no restriction as far as the supply. 
And that's a good thing because that means prices go down. So maybe, I don't know, maybe electric vehicles will catch on a little bit more. Right now, we're just try still trying to figure out what's going on. Now, we have discovered some cool things that Ford is doing, making leasing affordable on electric vehicles. At first, it was just not because really the manufacturers did not know how quickly these things were going to depreciate, whether they were going to go down really quickly or they were going to actually not depreciate. But we've discovered that, yes, just like any other used car, electric vehicles depreciate. And so we were just waiting for a good leasing program to come out, and it did. And as I've said before on this radio show, that is what you do with electric vehicles. Don't buy one because you really don't know what's going to happen. Put that burden of depreciation on the manufacturer. So Ford came out with a great program. Nissan came out with a great program to allow people to drive them on a relatively short term. I would not lease one for more than 36 months, but I think Nissan came up with a 12-month and an 18-month lease that looks pretty good. So if you want to try an electric vehicle out, you can for about $400 a month. I think maybe it's between four and 450 So that's not bad. Um, most people's car pay, I think the average car payment in this country is somewhere in the six to $700 a month range. Isn't that crazy? It just is. So hopefully with this lithium discovery, we'll be able to control prices. we got to see prices come down. I think you ought to be able to buy an electric vehicle for less than its internal combustion alternative. And maybe that will be the case once they figure out how to manufacture these things at an affordable cost. And then the other component is going to be, where do you get it charged and how quickly can you get it charged? Would you buy an electric vehicle? Don't answer me yet. Would you buy an electric vehicle if you could go let's say 500 miles on a charge, when you pulled up to a charging station, it was just like pulling up to a gas pump at Bucky's, and you could fill up with electricity in 5 to 10 minutes max and not pollute the environment and get all that power and smoothness that you get on an electric vehicle, and you knew that it was going to last and it has a good warranty. Would you buy one then? I would. I wouldn't be afraid of it then. Because my main factor is charger availability and how long it takes to charge. That is what's holding me back. I was I went by a Bucky's up in near Richmond, Kentucky, the other day when I went to see my grandson, and they have it looked like from the road maybe ten to twelve Tesla superchargers. Now who can charge their vehicle there? People who drive Teslas. But starting next spring, Ford. Nissan, Honda, Toyota, all of those can charge at a Tesla supercharger. And they're, they're everywhere, and they are reliable. You know, a lot of the charging stations that they have around the country, they're just not reliable. You don't know if they're going to work or not. That's been the big problem. So we'll see what happens. Okay, I'll take my last break, and I'll be back here in just a minute. Someone once told me, if you think an education is expensive, try ignorance. I have to agree with that. People get ripped off every day dealing with car dealers, dealing with a lot of other businesses as well. It's not just car dealers. When they don't know what they're talking about. Now, mind you, ignorance is not the same thing as stupidity. I realize that. Ignorance is just not knowing about a particular thing. Stupidity, that's a different animal. My goal through my car guru 
is to eliminate ignorance, to allow you to walk into a service department or a sales department of a car dealership and know what you're talking about. To not be afraid of a lease quote. You know, there's a lot of people just, oh, no, no, I'm not leasing. I don't want to see a lease payment. And I, I think of that, of that and I say, well, that's a big mistake because leasing is not a bad idea. It does not apply to everybody, especially people who drive a lot of miles. You know, leasing is just not for you. But if you don't drive a lot of miles, if you drive less than 25,000 miles a year, then leasing is worth looking at. And plus, if you drive a vehicle and uh, trade every two to three years anyway, um, if you like to, to buy a vehicle and not pay a lot of money down. I mean, people say, well, I never own it. You know, well, no, you don't ever own it. And you don't own the car that you're buying until you make the last payment on it. And would you rather lease a vehicle for 36 months and just be able to walk away or finance one for 84 months and want to trade in 48 months and you can't? Because you owe too much on it, you know, because you're way upside down. You know, you're never upside down in a lease at the end as long as you take care of the car. Oh, also, if you beat up a car, if you don't take care of a vehicle, leasing is probably not for you. But this is just something that people are ignorant about, and they just don't know. They don't, And, and also, they don't even want to see it. You know, if I'm buying a car then I'm going to say, well, show me what the lease payment would be and show me what the, the purchase payment would be. And just make sure that they're using the capitalized cost or that the capitalized cost that they're using is the same as the selling price on the car. Because sometimes dealers will play a game with that. And again, take the numbers home. You don't have to buy it today. Take the numbers home. Look at it. Crunch the numbers. Call the guru. Say, Lenny, is this a good deal? You know, if you're buying a Honda or Toyota or something like that, I'll, I'll forgive you. No, just just send me the information. I'll be glad to evaluate it for you. That's what I do on My Car Guru. Thanks for listening to this edition, and I'll see you next time.